welcome to the Knight Templar and the revelation of the relevance of the Bible. This is the last part of our seven-part series. Uh, I can't wait to indulge in this, and then uh, next week we're going to be starting on another one. Uh, it's going to be a lot longer than this one, uh, the Christian doctrine of man. Um, what I find that I like doing here lately is picking up old books from like the 17 and 1800s and and reading them and how times have changed so much um, in the biblical sense of the, the books that are written. Um, I think maybe sometimes we should take a step back and uh, look at these books and see what people have written that are former pastors and and uh, preachers and philosophers and theologians they're just amazing it's amazing how it seems like we change our ways from the bible to 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 be more easier but sin is sin and and people need to realize that um it hurts God. It hurts the community. We were just talking about this earlier today on a, on a Facebook message board. It, it, it hurts everybody. But anyway, enough said about that. Um, we're going to jump in uh, to our last part of our series again, uh, the person and uh, work of Christ. Um, more than once in the uh, foregoing talks, it has been said that the perfect revelation of God was given in Christ. And then in him, divine redemption was wrought. He is therefore more than a, than a casual figure in the Bible or a mere incident in the story it, it unfolds. Um, he is the crown and consummation of the Bible and is therefore desirable to devote some fuller thought to the biblical view of Christ. Moreover, if the claim persistently made throughout these uh, talks is justified in the Bible as a book that is relevant in its message to our modern world. Then Christ, as its crown and the consummation, uh, should be relevant uh, in, to our needs. Well, anything more than a brief glimpse at some aspect of a of the significance of Christ, it is with is. Out of the question here, it would seem desirable to examine some of the many sides of the biblical teachings about him to see how far he may be regarded as relevant to our modern world. So, uh, no one can read the Gospels without feeling the charm of Christ, without seeing something of that gracious spirit that marked him and feeling something of its uh, radiant influence. No one can read the Gospels without recognizing the loftiness of his teachings and the, the high demands he made on men. Love for God and love for man was the unfailing spring of the life. He lived, and the life to which he called men. He exemplified his teaching in himself, and when he called men to follow him, as he, as he so often did, it was not merely to make him their leader, but their example. And it lies deep in the teachings of the New Testament, and he is our example. Quote, I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done. You can find that in John. Quote again, we are reflecting as a mirror the glory of the Lord and transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Second Corinthians. Quote again, even as the Lord forgave you, so also do ye. In co uh, um, quote again, he that saith he abideth in him ought to ought himself also walk even as he walked. That's in first John. Quote again, everyone that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. And that's in 1 John. It follows from this 
that he was a real man and the modern emphasis on the reality of his manhood is the fullest of harmony with the teaching of the New Testament. His example could have no meaning for us if he were not truly of a of our flesh and blood entering to the culture inheritance of his race as we enter into ours learning by patient toil as we must learn facing temptation as we must face it uh, quote we have not a high high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities but one that hath been in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin that's find that in hebrews in him we see what manhood really is, what God created it to be. He revealed its high, its high possibilities uh, when it is dominated by lofty ideals, marked by unfailing purity, filled with deep sympathies directed by high purpose, and above all, lived in the unbroken consciousness of God's presence and fellowship. It has a nobility that makes it supremely attractive. When it is infused with the will, which is strong to resist all that is evil and strong to do that which is good and marked with an overflowing grace. It is worthy beyond all, all comparison amongst the treasures of earth. It is before us in the concrete reality of living personality in Christ. He revealed the true meaning of experience. It is so easy for us to, uh, to estimate the worth of a life by the riches it commands or the power it wields. Judged by the standards, few can be pronounced worthy for the for most to uh, have to pass their lives amidst the dull monotony of common tasks and in a humble station. Christ showed not alone by his teaching, but in himself that our outer our outer show counts for little, and that what really matters is the inner character and richness of the spiritual influence a man exercises. He revealed the dignity of commonplace and admits the commonplace most of us must uh, spend our days. Take this simple story of his birth. Joseph and Mary are journeying from Galilee to Bethlehem for the imperial census. The journey is a long and weary one for Mary, and they arrive late at the little guest room of Bethlehem and find it already crowded to its utmost capacity it was useless to look for chivalry there for the lord of chivalry was the unborn babe she carried they were therefore expelled to uh, find a shelter in an outhouse or cave where cattle were kept around this stable artists have conceived to weave a hollow of romance but there was nothing romantic about it it was a squalid and miserable place, and few children who have been born into this world can have had more unceremonious interest to life than he had. Had the world sought to dishonor him, it could not more effectively have done so. Yet, has its squalor not dishonored him? And the story of his birth is precious to men, and he will remain precious so long as men endure? His teaching was linked to common experiences, and all his lessons he founded in the things that belonged to the ordinary life. He saw common things and found them instinct with messages of eternal things and found God in everything that befell him. Even sorrow and temptation were filled by him with dignity and meaning. He entered into the sorrows of others and transfigured them by sympathy. He bore his own sorrows, which none could enter into. All the misunderstanding and hatred and rejection which confronted him caused him to intense sorrow just because he loved so profoundly those who misunderstood and hated and rejected him. Yet we do not esteem him a figure to be pitied and one whose life were best exchanged for any others. These things did not make any the less precious the greatest of lives. For what matters is less the experience than the way it is faced. And every experience can yield something of abiding worth when it isn't rightly faced. Moreover, he endured temptation, not alone in the wilderness, but again and again and again he faced temptation. For his manhood was real, and temptation is the lot of man. 
But temptation that is conquered yields strength to him and that overcomes and not alone did he rise from his temptations with greater strength, but because he endured them, his example was more meaning for us. <clears throat> Theologians have often discussed whether it was possible for Christ to sin, some uh, with the thought of his divinity uppermost in their mind have maintained that he could not sin others uh, with the thought of his humanity uppermost in their mind have maintained that he could sin it will be uh, argued uh, later as we talk that this uh, separation of his manhood and his divinity is completely mistaken um I would prefer to say that he could not uh, sin because he attained the ideal manhood. He was not kept from sinning by anything outside himself. It was just because his character was all of a piece. God is good just because he would be false to himself if he were not. And Christ is sinless just because he is ever true to himself. The more any man's character is of a piece, the more consistent it is the the really truthful man cannot lie not because it is theoretically impossible for him to tell a lie but because truth is in the soul and his falsehood he could not be experiencing and expressing his innermost self similarly the theological <clears throat> theoretical question whether christ could have sinned is hollow and vain and a vain one <clears throat> Sorry about that. I had to take a short pause for a drink of water. Uh, where were we? Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, we just went over the Christ uh, could have sinned is a hollow and vain one. Now, moreover, and he over he overcame sin by the strength of his character and by the indwelling power of God, just as we must if we would overcome it. In Christ, we see we see then uh, that life must be judged by inner test, and that uh, what matters is not our outer show and form of our experience, but uh, how much we are gaining from the gaining from it the quality of our manhood and by how much we are giving through it to its others to others um that this day is that this is relevant in our modern world and is crystal clear in a day of widespread sorrow and loss we are learning anew that uh, quote a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses and that's in luke and not a few have begun by crying out against the hard conditions which press upon them, have learned to find in those very conditions that which is calls from them nobility and unselfishness of a spirit that they before manifested. From the crucible of the testing, they have emerged finer and purer and, and have begun to learn something of the great truth which is proclaimed in Christ. In him we see the full glory of manhood, see the ideal towards which we must strive when we throw aside our false standards of life. It is equally fundamental to the teachings of the New Testament that in him we see God. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. It's in John. Another quote, uh, we behold his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. In John as well. Another quote, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead body, bodily. The uh, another one, the infulgence of his glory and the very image of his being in Hebrews. You can find that in Hebrews. The divinity of Christ is firmly believed to be as real as his humanity, and no discretion of the one to emphasize the other can claim any justification to support in the New Testament. And in all the foregoing chapters of the biblical teaching is here accepted wholeheartedly. Enough has been said uh, in earlier talks that we've had as to the character of his revelation of God. 
It is therefore unnecessary to add anything beyond a reformation of uh, uh, that we find, quote, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians. Um, are we not then on the horns of a dilemma? How can we hold any real sense both his humanity and his divinity? The trouble arises from our thought of the divinity as holier, 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 back up, as holy other than humanity. And it has been observed above that that this is not in accordance with the teaching of the Bible. God is another, is other than man, yet akin of man. He far transcends uh, man in power and in purity, but nevertheless, he made man in his own image, capable of being the vehicle of his spirit. The otherness and the kinship of God yield an unceasing tension which truth is to be found. And it is just because in Christ we find the tensions of otherness and likeness that we can find him find in him perfect man and, and very God. The Bible insists that he is the Son of God, yet we are also called to be sons of God of God. Christ taught us to call him our Father, quote, unquote. And Paul says, quote, Ye receive not the spirit of bondage against to fear, but ye receive the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself uh, beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and of children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. It's in Romans, unquote. Um, and again, he calls Christ the firstborn of many brethren, and it's in Romans. Then passages, these passages uh, would seem to imply that the difference between Christ and ourselves is merely a question of degree. He is the Son of God, and we are the sons of God. He is the firstborn of many brethren, but we are then his younger brothers, members with him of a common family. You, know, you have to look at it that way. Yet elsewhere, he is called the only begotten of the Father, and his sonship is regarded as wholly unique. Not a few today would ignore the uniqueness and stress that the idea uh, that the difference between him and us is but one degree. The assumption that a difference of a degree is but uh, trifling confuses the whole issue. There, there are differences of degree, uh, which are the greatest importance. The partial payment of a bill and its complete payment present a difference of degree and that few creditors would regard as of no moment. The, the difference between truth and falsehood may be represented as merely one degree. To the confusion of moral standards, there are difference of de differences of degrees which become difference the difference of kind. Uh, if we take a section of a cone in a plane at right angles to its axis, we shall have a circle. But if the plane move from the angle by never so little, we shall have an ellipse. If we continue to move the plane until it is parallel to the edge of the cone, we shall have a parabola which if we continue beyond this point, we shall have a hyperbola. The difference between all of these results, merely a difference of degree of inclination of the plane. Yet the properties of all these figures are different. Or looking uh, at two of these figures in another way. We may observe that an ellipse is described around two foci. The farther apart these foci are... Uh, the less like the circle is the ellipse. But the nearer together the foci are, the more is the ellipse like a circle. When the two foci coincide, the ellipse becomes a circle, but only when they coincide. There is a man, what is often described as, quote, that of God, unquote. A divine spark and virtue of man is the king's kinsman of God. But this is uh, not the whole of him. There is also that which is not of God, and at his best, he has two foci of his life. In Christ, these two foci coincide, and his life becomes not the ellipse, but the circle. 
perfectly centered in God, yet equally centered in himself, for he and the Father are in the perfect harmony, that uh, we are called to find the spring of our life in God, and that he is willing to put his spirit in our hearts to be the source of our life, has already been, it's already been said. Yet, in the best of us, his spirit is not the sole source of our life, and sin is not entirely eliminated, but remains as the evidence that there is still a second focus on life. Paul could say, quote, I live, and yet no longer I, but Christ liveth in me. But the same Paul was constrained to confess, quote, The good which I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I practice. It's in Romans. Uh, within the unity of his being, there was still a tension, not wholly resolved. Uh, and in all the saints of God, however near they may have come to the resolving of the tension, it has yet to some extent remained. In Christ it was resolved. He therefore constitutes the goal of our humanity and our true example towards which we must ever progress. Yet he ever transcends our attainment. Our lips may be greater than, uh, uh, may get nearer and nearer to the circle, yet it is ever other than the circle. His sonship is other than ours, though we are his brethren. In him uh, we see God and man, yet not as two who are separate through some somehow combined, but as one, not as two, two natures or two personalities or two wills, but in a perfect unity. A simple illustration of a different kind may uh, serve to clarify this thought. It is possible for a man to re refrain from stealing simply because the law says he must not. And if he does, he will be sent to prison. Uh, he, he may all the time have it in his heart a desire to steal, if only a safe opportunity presented itself and his not stealing have no moral value at all. On the other hand, he may refrain from stealing because he has no desire whatever to steal, because to steal would be to act unworthily of his own character because it would be contrary to the impulse of his own heart. If he had a splendid chance to steal and was quite confident that he could never be found out and punished, it would still not even occur because it occurred to him to steal for the law of his own heart is in this manner is perfectly accord with the law of the land. In not stealing, he is not the slave of the law but a free man, living out of the law of his own heart. There is no tension between the law of his own heart here. It is resolved in perfect unity. So Christ, in all his life, obeyed the will of God, not as an external constraint laid upon him, not as a result of a trial of strength between God's will and his own, or through the brushing aside of his will for God's, but because it was equally his will. Against uh, such, a, such a view, the story of agony at Gethsemane I'm sorry, might uh, seem at first sight to provide a sufficient answer. Do we not there see the reluctance of Jesus to go forward under the constraint laid upon him, his earnest cry against the path that lies before him, and his plea for another way? And though he was prepared to go forward, is, is it not the spirit of brushing aside his will of, for God's? And is his recognition that in the ultimate, uh, it must be God's will and not his that prevails? Quote, O oh my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass away from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. You can find that in Matthew. A very slight reflection will show that this passage is to be understood quite otherwise. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, quote, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, unquote, in Matthew, he did not inculate 
their inculate a spirit of passive resignation to the will of God. This is an active eagerness to see God's will done. And he who prays the prayer in sincerity will seek to further his fulfillment by yielding his own life to be the instrument of God's will. And when Jesus prayed, quote, not as I will, but as thou wilt, unquote. He does not mean, quote, thy will be done on me, unquote, but thy will be done through me, unquote. He, sh he shrank from the cross not because he dreaded the suffering and the shame he would endure, but because he dreaded the climax of human sin that should there be enacted of what he so earnestly desired was a way of lifting a man out of his sin without the greatest of all sins. Yet if there were no other way, he was ready, not in weak resignation, but in the unshrinking consecration to be the instrument of God's will. He profound, his profoundest purpose was that God would, God's will be done and done through him. His eager desire for another way that might spare him his crowning inequity was his nothing to his yet deeper desire that God's redeeming purpose for man should be achieved through him. Hence, when the cup did not pass from him, it was not because his prayer was rejected, but because it was in the drinking of that cup that his prayer to be the instrument of, father, of the Father's will was granted. His cross became the great channel of God's redeeming grace and, and the instrument of his redeeming purpose just because that same grace and purpose so perfectly possessed his heart. Christ then is a great example, yet is he more than our example. In him we truly see man, in him we truly see God, and both in in the unity of a single person. In him, God stoops to us to lift us up in, into himself. As Athanasius expressed it, quote, he became man that we might become divine, unquote. He became the son of man that we might become the sons of God. He is not merely our elder brother. Our sonship is acquired through him. God created man in his own image and we are by nature destined for the sonship of God. Yet is that sonship something to be achieved, and yet that cannot be achieved by our own effort. It is achieved through Christ. This brings us to the consideration of the work of Christ and the means whereby he proves the mediator of redemption and the great source of the foundation of all his redeeming work was the cross. It will be well to approach the cross in a simple and non-technical way, just as we approached every subject uh, we have so far considered. Nor is it necessary to repeat the warning that we cannot hope to exhaust the significance of the cross of Christ within the compass of, of a few talks. We can only hope to consider a few aspects of that significance. The, the theologian too often approaches the interpretation of the cross speculatively, it seems. His business is to achieve a speculative interpretation, but not to build a speculation on speculation. Too often he starts with the person of Christ and then considers what the death of such a person might be expected to achieve. Often... Uh, one begins with some New Testament metaphor that is used to illustrate the meaning of the cross, and especially has a metaphor of that ransom-dominated theology. Quote, the Son of Man came it not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Unquote. Find that in Mark. Much of the thought uh, that uh, these talks have stimulated has uh, been given to the question of the recipient of the ransom. Uh, though no metaphor should be pressed in all the, the, our details, and in the Lord's use of the metaphor, there is nothing to indicate that he was thinking of the recipient. For many centuries, the answer of orthodoxy, uh, orthodoxy 
was that Christ brought, bought us out of the hand of the devil. Yet this, on the same basis of the logical pressing details, involved the thought that he gave himself to the devil as the price. And honored theologians argued uh, the devil found Christ one too, uh, one too many for him, and then that after he had released his prey in return for Christ, he found he could not hold him. Gregory of uh, Nassau uh, could speak of Jesus as the bait by which God hooked the devil. Ambrosia could speak of the pious fraud practiced by God on the devil. Peter Lombard could say that Christ extended his cross to the devil as a mousetrap, baited with his blood. Other theologians revolted against uh, such a view and argue that it was to God the ransom was paid. And so in the great drama of redemption, they set Jesus over against God and supposed that Jesus, by his death, persuaded God to do for us what he would uh, not otherwise have done. This would seem to be even a more objectionable and certainly more alien to the, the thought of the Bible. I prefer, uh, let's talk about, uh, to approach the cross from a side of experience and uh, to ask what is wrought in human lives, striving to understand its power by its effect. This is sometimes condemned as a subjective uh, method of approach, but only by a misuse of the term subjective. Every sort of discussion, whether of this one or any other question, is necessarily subjective in that, that it represents the thinking of some mind. Even the propositions of Euclid are subjective uh, in this sense. They represent truths which were perceived in the mind of a thinking subject, yet because they represented not the idio idiocracies of a particular mind, but, pos pros the, the, but the pros processes which are open to every normal mind and whose validity validity can be perceived by other minds. They are more than subjective. In the same way, if uh, I were to argue that my own peculiar experience alone gave the final key to the meaning of the cross, I should be arguing subjectively. But when I argue that the experience of countless Christian souls in all ages gives that key, it is not rightly called subjective. There is an objectivity of experience as well as of thought. And it is the this it is the objectivity of experience that I would seek, not as a substitute for thought, but as the basis for thought. At first, the disciples regarded the death of Jesus as a tragedy, wrecking all their hopes. They had thought that quote it was He which should redeem Israel unquote like that Luke, but it seemed that uh, there were they were doomed to complete disappointment. This man of surpassing character and ideals had been foully murdered. And only disgust and despair seemed appropriate moods to be called forth. What hope could there be for a world which treated a Jesus thus? What hope could there be for a world which treated a Jesus, Jesus like this? In latter ages, not a few have been content to see the death of Jesus, nothing more than a tragedy and find him in uh, just a martyr with, who pathetically threw his life away in the preaching of his high principles for which the world was not ready. That this inadequate view is proved by experience. The first disciples soon found in the cross the abiding spring of power, power which transformed them and launched them on the gigantic task of winning the world. Jesus is more than a martyr. Just because experience has always found in his cross a power that no martyr's death has shown. But uh, was not the death of the martyr saving? And did not uh, Tertullian say in familiar words, quote, the blood of the martyrs is seed, unquote? And is not this very much what Jesus said of his own death? Quote, except 
a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abideth by itself alone, but if it die, it beareth much fruit. Unquote. Find that in John. Ought we not then to say that he was but as one of them, and that his death is saving only as theirs was? Again, uh, I reply that experience has always distinguished between his death and that of martyrs. His death was the inspiration of theirs, and it and it was for the love of him that they gave their lives so freely. Moreover, the death of the martyrs have saving power only because they pointed men in their death to him, in whom alone was salvation to be found. Yet again, the death of Jesus is removed from the death of the martyrs just because in his life he transcended them so far it is in the setting of that life of the incongruity of his death appears. Before, before his cross, men, before his cross, men, men and women of all generations have experienced the power of which they regenerated him. The sense of tragedy has been swallowed up in their joy of hope. They have felt themselves to be changed men and women, dead to the old life, charged with a new power. Nor have they merely felt change, or others have marked the change, testified to it, no less than insurance. Uh, this is not the experience of a few individuals or in a single age. Through 60 generations, great numbers have felt that, uh, even through 100 generations, they have felt that they could, with simply, with simple sincerity, use in relations to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. words uh, which they read Words which would say read, I'm sorry, I was interrupted there for a second. And um, Old Testament, quote, uh, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our own peace was upon him. And with his stripes, with his strips, we are healed, unquote. My dad, Isaiah. Um, they have been uh, able to say, quote, This I know that he died, and I have found life. He who was so pure died, and I who was so foul and cleansed. He has changed me, and I am dead to my sins. He who deserved not to die died, and I who deserved to die am delivered. My sins no longer stand between me and God. It is unreal to me to discuss whether he paid the price of God or to the devil. I know that my redemption cost him his life and that I am free from the law of sin and of death. To establish the fact of the redeeming power of the cross, however, is not to understand wherein its power lies. The first Christians found in the cross the evidence of fruit of God's love. It was, the, it was first and foremost the revelation of God to them. He who manifested God in all and all his life supremely manifested him in his death. This means that uh, all those interpretations of the cross which set Christ over against God to act of redemption are inadequate. He did not buy us out or of the hand of God. He did not appease an angry God. He did not die to satisfy some principle of justice which is in God. He died for our sins, and that is not justice, but love. Nor is the love merely his. God condemneth his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Unquote. In Romans, quote again, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's in John. Unquote. Quote again, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Second Corinthians. Uh, this is, of course, not to deny that God's justice is found in redemption. He was not sometimes just and sometimes loving. His character is one of indivisible. It is therefore true, as one of our hymns puts it, 
that in the cross of Christ, quote, heaven's love and justice meets. But they meet not to oppose one another, but to interpret, interpenetrate one another. The cross declares that he who is just is also loving. At cross, had Christ not died, we had never known how profoundly God loves. He loves so greatly that he enters into our suffering, and especially into the suffering that human sin entails. Yeah, rather, he takes upon himself his deepest suffering. The cross is also the revelation, the revelation of man in all his high potentiality and in the depth of, the need, of his need. There we see Christ, the crown of manhood, and all the supreme glory of his greatness, and we know that God created us to be such as he. In the glory of that love, we see that the supreme example for us, yet equally in that act that we see the depth of human need. It was sin that crucified him. And there are essential nature the essential nature of the sin is exposed in all its horrors. It was not merely the sin of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that crucified him. It was the sin, precisely the same sort of sin that reigns in our hearts. Had we been there, we had been, we had been numbered with his crucifiers for our sin and theirs are one. Yeah, rather we were there for the cross is uh, to be thought of not alone as an act of history. It is that indeed, but it is more. It is an act of history which gives an insight into the eternal heart of God and which is a symbol of the agony that human sin ever causes his heart. When we reject the divine way of life and become sin into our heart, we renew that agony of his heart. We crucify the Son of God afresh. Look that up in Hebrews. It is sometimes said that it is Christ's life rather than his death that is redemptive. He revealed God in his life and unveiled at once the fullness of his love and the depth of a human need through sin. The New Testament insists that the redemption is through his blood. Quote, through his blood, unquote, and find that in and declares that, uh, quote, without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, unquote, Hebrews. And rightly, had Christ not died, we had never known how greatly God loved us. How had Christ not died, we had never known how sinful is sin. That is why the cup could not pass from Christ. The full honor of the character of sin must be unveiled. It crucified the best man who ever lived and cast him out of the world just because he was infulgence of the divine glory. For sin and God cannot dwell together, but the cross is more than revealing. It is re redemptive. It is the power, quote, the power of God unto salvation. Find that in Romans. In Christ crucified, God takes hold of us and recreates us. When we see the glory of God's heart unveiled in the cross, and we see the essential nature of sin and realize that a symbol of somehow our pain, sin pains the heart of God, then is our heart broken by that love? Yep, our heart is broken by that love. We loathe the self that crucifies him, loathe the self that casts God out of our lives, loathe the self that lives in such devastation, isolation from God. The cross is not the price that the devil demanded. It's the price that God demanded. It is the price I demanded. And the price that we should all demand of each other. For no lesser price would have won anybody, or won you, won me. Yet it does not win merely by its illumination. There are some theories of the cross which resolve its effect to into the change wrought on God, altering his attitude towards us. It has been sufficiently said that it seems preferably to find here that the revelation of God. There are other theories which resolve its effect into the change of wrought into man, and nothing more. That it does work a change in man is undeniable. 
but that the change is not achieved merely by showing man how dire in, it is in his need. The power of the cross is the power of God reaching down to man in Christ to refashion him. Nor is that refashioning a mere pretense. The New Testament speaks sometimes justification, quote, being just justified freely by his grace in Romans. Quote again, being now justified by his blood. Quote again, being therefore justified by faith. Find all those in Romans. It is sometimes argued that uh, the word justified does not mean made righteous, but treated as righteous. The argument is supported by much, uh, much linguistic learning, but is not profound enough uh, for the thought of the New Testament, nor indeed of the Old Testament. Quote, I even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. Unquote. It is, it is in the, uh, it's the sin itself that is taken away and not that God treats, us, treats an unrighteous man as though he were righteous. In the previous uh, talks we had, it's been held that the salvation is not merely from the consequences of sin, but from the sin itself. It involves the cleansing and renewing of the personality, the creating of a new self that is just and pure in the sight of God. Amply, uh, this does not rest merely on the translations of a single Greek verb. The New Testament speaks not alone of justification, but also of the new birth. Quote, except a man be born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unquote. Find that in John. If any man... Well, again, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, 2 Corinthians. The old self, the self of sin that rejects and crucifies Christ must perish, that a new self may come into being. And the new self is born of Christ, marked with his purity, finding the spring of its life in his dwelling and indwelling presence. I have been crucified with Christ, yet I live on and yet no longer I, but Christ liveth in me. And you can find that in the Bible, Galatians. Um, another quote, that they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so, that the spirit of God dwell in you. But if the, any man hath not the spirit of Christ, he is none of this, none of his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead, because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And you find that in Romans. This is a this miracle of uh, renewal is the divine miracle of redemption. All the inner consequences of the old sin are taken away. The deterioration of character gives place to a, uh, a new strength and soundness. The guilt of the Dane of sin are gone, yet, as been said, this divinely wrought change is in man is not the entire work of the cross. In speaking of the Old Testament sacrifice, it has been said that to achieve uh, nothing mere, merely uh, experio e preto, it uh, needed. Sorry, I had to put that accent in there. It. Uh, it needed to be the organ of submission of the sacrificer if it was to be the organ of uh, the divine cleansing. In the same way, the death of Christ is a sacrifice offered unto God as well as a revelation of God. And before it can uh, become operative for us, it must uh, be the organ of our repentance, submission, and faith. Uh, when we yield ourselves in unreserved surrender to Christ, who died for us, we make his sacrifice the organ of our obedience, and it therefore becomes the organ of divine forgiveness and renewal to us. Quote, our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that so we should no longer be in bondage to sin. But if we are died with Christ, we died with Christ, we believe that he shall, we shall, also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, 
dieth no more. Find that in Romans. Uh, by the yielding of ourselves to him, we become identified with him. The old self dies with him, that the new self, born of him, um, may share his experience of resurrection. It was not they who crucified Christ who sacrificed him unto God. It was they who are crucified with him who so sacrificed him. The cross brings only condemnation to them that crucified him. And so long as we are merely numbered with his crucifiers, it spells condemnation for us. It is only when we yield our hearts in loving obedience to him, op opening them to experience the miracle of divine renewal and his death becomes our sacrifice to God and brings pardoning grace to us. Hence the faith of the New Testament insists on essential to the salvation is not some arbitrary condition fixed by God. It is inevitable and fundamental. We are not saved by faith or by repentance or by anything other than the grace of God and Jesus Christ. Faith is not some intellectual belief about Christ, though it must include an intellectual element. But fundamentally, it is the yielding of ourselves in him to him to be born anew in him the identifying of ourselves with him so that his death becomes our sacrifice unto God, his obedience, our offering of obedience unto God, the sharing of his death so that we may, may share his glorious resurrection. And repentance belongs essentially to all of this. Just because we cannot be saved from sin while we cling to it and because we must loathe that which crucified him, Ere the power of his cross can achieve its victory in us. In an age when uh, the sinfulness of sin is so manifested in ours, all this is vital. That's a vital moment to men. The fruits of sin, whether individual or national life, are recognized to be evil, and men's teeth are set on edge. But even if man and if men pass from the hatred of their fruits of sin to hatred of sin, and that is so, no step that uh, men lightly and naturally take, mere hatred of sin will bring no salvation. None. There are many preachers of repentance, repentance of individuals and national sins, yet repentance alone is no gospel for mankind, for repentance is not re redemptive. It is Christ who is the world's redeemer. We need to behold in the cross the gross iniquity of that which so sounds the heart of God and to realize that in all our sin, God suffers more deeply than we do ourselves. In the private sins that stain our lives, he suffers. And in the sins that mar the life of the nations, and the wars, which are the outcome of those sins, God suffers, and suffers because he loves. Suffers because his so desire to refashion all of our life in fairness and grace. He can do this when we, when we will bring our life to the cross of Christ, there to abandon the old and to find in him a spring of new. It is not enough for us merely to hate the old and decide to abandon it and try again. We must let the old be nailed to his cross, that the new may there take its rise with its spirits, with his spirit and, and his will at his heart. And this is just as true of the life of the community as of the individual. His will must lie at the heart of all our national life, if it is to be worthy. It is easier to win individual hearts to this self-abandonment to Christ, and certainly it is vital to do so, for no community will ever be delivered from sin while the people who make up its life are living in sin. The redeemed community will consist of redeemed individuals, and the work of individual redemption is therefore essential. 
Yet a community of redeemed individuals is not necessarily a redeemed community. It is a common knowledge that the standards of a community may be below those of individuals who comprise it. Certainly they can be far below the, the standards of the best elements of the community for the policy of the community or government may be directed by men who are unworthy even of the, of the community. Parallel, therefore, with the work of the leading individuals to the cross of Christ should go to the work of testifying that only when the nations find the spring of their life in Christ and genuinely realize that in the will of God is their peace, can they find release from their ills. Ourselves dedicated to Christ, we should seek to lead the nation to corporate repentance and faith in Christ and that his cross may become the organ of our obedience and the organ of God's redemption. To such an enterprise of the church is called by the events of our time, especially our time these days, and an urgent is the need. It is not that more, more work of the church should be neglected, quote, this ought ye to have done and not to have left other undone, unquote. Matthew. It is that, besides the more parallelical, parallelical work, this great task should be unitedly undertaken by the whole church, all churches, in living faith that Christ is the Lord of all life, and that he is the only relevant answer to our need, and that he can inspire the life of nations as well as of men. It is not enough for individual Christians to believe this most profoundly. It is for the church corporately to seek to bring the corporate life of the world to the recreating spring of the crucified Redeemer. And that concludes our seventh part of the relevance of the Bible. Let's bow our heads and have a quick prayer here. Lord, Lord God, look, look from heaven and from your glory and your holiness. Look on us in your love, mercy, and power. We pray that you yourself will move and come from your home to glory to touch this earth afresh. Convict us of our sin. May we repent deeply from our heart. Forgive us that we have pondered to the flesh. We have not called sin, sin, but have soft-pedaled it, playing it down. May we have your view of sin, considering as serious that it offends you and the holiness. Forgive our indifferences and unbelief and our willingness, our reluctance and distrust. Jolt us out of our complacency and preoccupation with ourselves, Lord, and our churches. Uh, may we be humble and penitent, prayerful and expectant. May we be complete, completely open to you, Lord, willing to change and to be changed, to be afresh, to be made afresh. Uh, may the fresh wind of the reviving break us, mold us, and fill us again. May we become even more obedient, to be more centered on your will. In those areas of our life, Lord, we are still holding out against you, even to a small extent. Please, may we truly accept your lordship to make, make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We are wandering through the wilderness of life. We are desperately need you to pour out your Holy Spirit to wake us all up to reality. Bring life to your people. Purify your church. Cleanse us from our sins. And 
and turn back to you. Revive us spiritually. Refine us and purify us. Set our hearts alight again with your fire. Demonstrate even in our time, even today, even now, the victory Jesus Christ won at Calvary with his death on the cross. May we enter into all the fullness of the joy of the Lord is rightfully ours. Feed us spiritually from your word. May we use the Bible, the sword of the Spirit, in our warfare. Reduce our caution and fears. Increase our love in your word and your world. Break into our lives, our lives, with your power. Bring healing to those parts of our lives that are broken out of joint. Lord Jesus, show your resurrection power among us. Reveal yourself outside the box of the conventional ways in which we think you might work. Break through the boundaries we have set on your activity. Surprise us with your activity, Lord. Do something unexpected among us. Lord, we plead with you to do something amazing and extraordinary among us. Bring our country and leaders to your heart, Lord. Spirit of God, give us a burden for our souls. Lord, souls without who without you are perishing. We're praying right now for unsaved members of family, friends, community, who are at this moment eternally lost. My neighbors, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray they would all know Jesus Christ personally. May we not settle for less. May we not continue to seek and be satisfied with anything less than a deeper revelation and experience of yourselves. May your revival not be limited to the church, but you also open the eyes of those who do not know you. Heal the hearts of those at present in Satan's powers. Challenge our culture. Energize us to bring renewal and reform to our tired society and nation. Lord, the nations of the world need you. This country needs you. Our community needs you. May your people serve local communities you have put us in with renewed zeal. May you work through us to bring peace, justice, and reconciliation to those who know our only conflict and who are powerless and who do not know you. So we, Lord, want more of you. May your kingdom come in, come even in our generation, even through us, even through me. Lord, keep us praying for a revival until you see us answer. As we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. As I said earlier, thank you for joining me for our last part of our book, uh, last part of our talk, the revelation of the, the relevance of the Bible. Also, uh, I am part of a Knight's Temper Order, and you can check that out if you'd like to at www.americanightstemplers.com. If you have any prayer requests, you can go there, join the website, and uh, leave your email and your prayer request there, and it'll get to me. And I can add those in as we go along. Um, or you can email me directly at davidr258 at comcast.net. Now, next week, we're going to be starting a big series, The Christian Doctrine of Man. It's going to take quite a while on this one, but it should be fun. Other than that, that's all I have for today. Um, I'll be back on here, uh, probably start out Monday because I have a lot of uh, things coming up. So uh, maybe Sunday, maybe Monday. Look for my posts, <laughs> usually on Facebook. Um, but like I said, if you care to uh, join our Templar group, uh, you can go to www.americanightstemplars.com. Thank you very much for joining me. God continue to bless you in many ways and keep his arms around you. Have a good night.